Welcome to episode 47 of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung. I'll be joined for this episode by co-host Shanna Burnett. We hope everyone is staying healthy and safe out there. And today we're excited about our guest, another legend in track and field, Jim Ryan joins the show. Jim, of course, needs no introduction. He was the first high school athlete to break the four-minute barrier in the mile. He was an Olympian by 17 years of age, three-time Olympian overall. He also has held the world record in the mile. He has an Olympic silver medal from 1968 and is considered by many to be the greatest American miler of all time. Jim has a sweet gentle spirit and Shannon and I both couldn't help but smile throughout this interview we think you'll do the same so without further ado let's talk to Jim Ryan welcome to the clean sport collective podcast this is Chris McClung I'm joined by my co-host today Shannon Burnett Shannon how are you doing today I am doing well thanks Chris good to have you with me today and we are very very excited to have Another legend in track and field on the show today. Jim Ryan is joining us. How are you doing today, Jim? Chris, I'm doing really well, thank you. Thanks for asking. It's good to have you on. We just had legend Edwin Moses on, who was a little bit after your time, but we're going back to back on track and field legends, which is exciting for us. We always like to start these conversations by learning a little bit more about your background, maybe even starting before the running part. You grew up in Wichita, Kansas. What was your life like as a child, and how did you grow up? You know, it was I would say it was pretty normal in many respects. Uh, you know, you go to school. Uh, I I was one of those kids that, in growing up, I I the best way to describe it is I was a grade school nerd. I didn't say the right things, didn't do the right things, and so consequently, as a result of that, I was searching for uh, identity, if I may say that, something that would give me you know, a reason for, well, this maybe a little too straightforward living because it was one of those times where you're just looking for answers. And so, you know, I fell into the mode of, of uh, wanting, thinking that if I got into sports, maybe I could find some fulfillment there. And uh, it was interesting because I tried out for the baseball team. That was my first venture into sports. Uh, and my progression was from the outfield to the infield to the bench and then I was cut from the team, and it was a church baseball team. So it became very clear to me that baseball was not my future. And uh, that kind of, not only kind of, but did continue during junior high basketball, where, uh, you know, I was invited out for my height. Uh, and during the very first practice, uh, the coach came over and said, I'd like to have a meeting with you in my office. And this is when uh, my junior high was Curtis Junior High, it was three years, seventh grader. And of course, I'm going into his office. And one of the things that, you know, God has given me is the gift of imagination, if I may say that. And so uh, what happened is I went into his office with this great expectation that he had some sort of uh, insightful thing to share with me. And it was, I guess you could call it insightful, but not in the right direction, because he, he said, you know, your, 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 ball, your basketball game is not what the other boys are playing. And I said, hey, coach, hey, it's still developing. I know when I get to high school, uh, I will develop a game because my father put a goal up over the garage. I practiced. And he said, I agree with you. In fact, when you finish with the shower, bring your singlet and hang it on the door. And that was the end of my basketball experience. So hmm. not exactly you know, a rosy start. Uh, junior high track and field was very, very similar. I, I ended up staying out for three years. I could have been a decathlete, so to speak, because I did all the different events, never got cut. But I never officially made the team. And if I, can, if I can say it at this point, Chris, one of the things out of that that I know if those that are listening, either athletes or coaches, sometimes we you know, need to focus on, and that is that uh, you know, a coach has, I think, a responsibility uh, to help you and guide you in the right direction. And while those were all painful experiences, I'm grateful for those coaches saying what they did because as a result of that, I didn't become an average baseball player or basketball player, but you know, God had other plans, and I became, uh, you know, by the grace of God, a really good runner. But those those early years were very, very difficult. And then, and one more thing I'll share, and then happy to respond to something else. And that is, uh, I was a church individual at that point in time, and so uh, I, I, I guess I must have heard the pastor talking about prayer. 
And so I'd go to bed at night during those days when I was being cut from teams. And I'd say, dear God, if you've got a plan for my life, I'd really appreciate it because I want it to mean something. I want my life to amount to something. And then I usually punctuated at the end by saying, can you do it in sports? I'd like that. <laughs> and then I'd, I'd go to sleep. And so, you know, those early days were uh, formative, uh, very challenging, probably not different than a lot of your listeners in that you've gone through some disappointments. And I like to say, you know, uh, failures or disappointments are a temporary detour to success. And so in, in my case, that was true. And those were the early days of growing up in Wichita, Kansas. Well, some would have been discouraged by those quote unquote failures at the time. What, what drove you on? What kept you seeking? You know, I think Chris, the thing that kept me going was searching for something that I could do. Uh, and I had no, uh, you know, I didn't know. I, I didn't have any great picture of what it was going to be and what I would become because uh, I just wanted to be a part of a team. And you know, we have our Jim Ryan running camps, and that's one of the things that a lot of the campers come in with, wanting to be a part of a team, and they become a part of that uh, camp atmosphere and alumni and all of that. And so that was one thing that kept me going. I just wanted to be a part of the team. And so, as a sophomore uh, in high school, uh, I, you know had never run further than one lap on the track. And I'm dating myself 440 yards, not meters, 440 yards. And so when I went into high school, uh, our high school was very large, uh, 3,000 students, three years. So each class was about 1,000. We had to have double assemblies. And I remember going to the fall assembly in September and uh, the coaches presented uh, football. And and then uh, Coach Timmons, who was then the cross-country and eventually the track coach, got up and spoke about cross-country. I had absolutely no idea what cross-country was, but I thought, well, I haven't tried this, so let's go out for the cross-country team. And uh, I knew I was in trouble the very first day because we met in front of the gym. We had about 100 guys out for the team, which was a pretty good number. And one of the, the guys in the team that was, a, uh, you know, if you will, a leader a captain said, we're going up to College Hill Park. And so I thought, well, that's, that's, that's cool. So we took off down the street. We filled the street up. It was a, a side street, so it really wasn't an issue of cars. And partway up, I asked one of the guys, because I'm starting to breathe heavily. I said, "Where? how far is this place away from here? <laughs> said, well, it's a mile. And I, of course, they did quick math, and I realized that would be four times further than I'd ever run before. So we get up to this little park, and, and it's, uh, you know, you do some uh, calisthenics and some wind sprints. And I discovered for the first time in my life, that was what you would call a warm-up. And so you can see this is all going to be such a, a shock to the system. And believe me, it was because for the next hour and a half, we ran around trees and repeat distances. And I couldn't wait till practice was over. It was partway downhill back to the gym. And was that gave me the hope of getting back there. I got there, took a shower, went home. I saw my mom. I was so tired. I didn't have dinner. I said, Mom, I, I got to go to bed. I, I just, I, I know I don't have any appetite. And so I woke up the next morning and uh, my, uh, I was so stiff and sore that I walked up the stairs backwards, got upstairs and I made a proclamation, which I'm so glad didn't happen. And that is, I said to my mom, I am never doing this cross country stuff again. <laughs> and after uh, six class periods, walking up and down stairs, I found myself out for the cross country team. And it was, a, it was a rich experience. Uh, was not necess- it wasn't successful for the first six weeks or so because I was just starting to run. I had shin splints, everything that most beginning runners had, but it was the beginning of something happening. And I, I reflect on that now with you guys, that simple prayer, dear God, if you've got a plan, hey, I'd like it in sports. And boy, did he show up. What got you out for the second practice after <laughs> My- that miserable first day? My my teammates that uh, I didn't really know that well, but uh, you know, I they just said, "Hey, are you coming out?" Of course, first class period, going up and down three flights of stairs. I said, "No," uh, and then by the time I got to the fourth and fifth period, I thought, "Well, uh, why not try it again?" And so I I went back out of the team. But but it was the encouragement of my uh, I guess the beginning teammates that would become friends, uh, and it was a, a rich experience. And that's why for your listeners, especially young people who might be considering a sport like running, you know, it takes time to build a foundation. I, at that time, I didn't know what that was, but to work through some beginning uh, issues. And uh, once I got through that, I stayed out, but it was a real challenge in the beginning because you're 
you've never run more than a quarter of a mile and every day you're running four or five miles and more than that over time. But the encouragement that they offered, and I realize now that's a big deal, what you say to people, how you treat them. You have it in your, in your voice, if you will, in your vocabulary, you have the opportunity to speak life or death or encouragement. And so tell, just tell them, keep coming and, and let that be a part of, you know, what you might do to encourage someone. And that's what I had. I had teammates that said, Hey, why don't you come out some more? Keep trying. That's amazing. How old were you at the time, Jim? Oh boy, that means I was 15 when I first started running. Oh my gosh. 1962. So uh, that was, that's a long time ago, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's just yesterday. Uh, (laughs) So um, how did you, I mean, obviously you progressed really quickly. What were those years like? Well, they were, I, I say this as an adult, uh, as a, I had to pinch myself and go back and realize that it happened to me. I mean, it was, it was an amazing journey. And I, I cherish those early days as much as I do the wonderful accomplishments God has allowed me to have since. And so when I started out, my first accomplishment was making last man on the C team. And that was the first cross country season. What is that? Well, that's 21st person which doesn't seem like anything, but it was finally becoming a part of a team. And then this amazing progression happened over the next few weeks before we got to what be city and regional and state. I went from 21st man to the B team on the varsity. And by the time we went to the state meet, I was the number one man on our varsity team. And we had a great team. We ended up finishing uh, first in the state meet. I ended up finishing sixth in the state meet. And that was the the beginning of of what I thought would be a career as a, if you will, a two miler, because that's what you ran then in Kansas and cross country. So it was it was there were interesting days. And uh, Channing, anyway, I appreciate this a little bit. I once I made the team towards the end of the season, you get then what's a big deal it was a letter jacket, and on that letter jacket with the Biggie for East High School, you get these little pins, and I had my CC for cross country and put it on, and I was just thrilled and elated, finally made a team. And I somehow had the impression that girlfriends and letter jackets went together. And uh, so I had the letter jacket, but no girlfriend popped up and was interested in wearing my letter jacket. So uh, that was that was the very beginning of it all. And so those are rich memories, which, uh, you know, again, I will cherish all my life. Do you remember a moment when it clicked for you? Uh, it didn't, it didn't really, if you, if guess when, what do you mean by click? Let me try that. I guess I mean, when you realized, Hey, I can be good at this. Was there a moment that you remember in practice in a meet where uh, suddenly it was easier again? It wouldn't happen. And even then that was some hesitation until I was in the outdoor season of my sophomore year, because even though that was uh, an amazing turnaround, if you will, from last man and not running to first man on the team. And we had great uh, cross country and track teams. Uh, it was just, I just, you know, that was wonderful. And, you know, I was grateful, but it wasn't until the track season. And I have a, I have a wonderful coach. And I, I think Shannon, you may have heard this when you came to our camp. I share the story of coach Timmons, who was not only a, a mentor, but a, a wonderful man who was a visionary and, and actually very heavy disciplinarian. And that was very helpful for me, the six, 140 pound, you know, skinny kid, shy. And he took and molded me into the, the runner that I became through the years. But it was someplace in that first track season that, you know, I, maybe it was the bus ride. I'll, I'll share the bus ride. I, I won my, I lost my first high school mile to the defending state champion. First timed mile on the track was 538, first time to mile during the spring of 1963 was uh, 450, my first meet. I ran 432, so there was an enormous improvement. But my fourth high school race was a very significant one in that it wasn't so fast, although it was 421, I was improving as a sophomore. But it was the bus ride from Kansas City back to Wichita. And Coach Timmons had the policy of bringing each one of the athletes up to a seat he kept open to talk with them about their event. So this was not just me, it was the team. And we had, you know, two buses of, of uh, runners and surrollers and vaulters and all of that. And so he'd call us up and we'd sit down and he would talk about your race. On that day, I'd run 421. And he said to me, how fast do you think you can run? Of course, I didn't have any idea. 
I mean, it's all new. And of course, I'm enjoying being a part of a team. I said, coach, on a good day with the wind behind my back, which all runners recognize doesn't happen on oval track. But I said maybe 419, thinking that was really brave. Uh, and without a moment of hesitation, he said, you know, I think you can be the school record holder. This is after four races. And I knew on the gym back at the school, the re- the school record was the national record by Archie San Romani Jr. of 408.2. And I knew that when I finished the 421, I was held captive, if you will, by what I felt that day. My thoughts were, wow, that's fast. Uh, and my body told me that it was fast because my head, my legs, everything hurt. And I thought, wow, how do you go from 421 to 408? And then while I had my attention, he said, no, I think you can do what another high school boy's ever done. And, of course, I'm thinking, you know, a national record, not bad for a kid that just started running. And he said, I, you know, Dr. Bannister was the first man to run a mile under four minutes. And I didn't even know that. I mean, so I'm learning as he's going along. And he said to me, I think you can be the first high school boy to run under four minutes. And I thought, how's that going to happen? I had no idea you know, what what that actually meant or how you could get there. And so I respectfully nodded my head and went back to the back of the bus and just sat there and thinking, wow, how's that going to happen? Because, again, I was thinking only in terms of my experience at that point in time. And, you know, that's one of the things we talk about in our camp is, you know, dream big. You're going to have those moments when things don't go well, but so many people are afraid to dream big because they're going to fail someplace. Well, you know what? You are going to have failure, but you might as well fail in something you really enjoy and become better and better as you go along. Wow. That's a powerful story of coach speaking that belief to you. Yeah. But he did it to all the athletes. So what I'm saying is that he he would take each of those, in those cases, before Title IX, Shannon, sorry about that, but that <laughs> he, would, he would take each of us from where we were to where he thought we could go and a big factor in that was, were you willing to believe and really willing to take that risk and try? So, uh, so Jim, talk to us about that. So he talks to you about breaking, being the first high school boy to break the four-minute mile. What did it look like after that? Did it become scary to you? Did it become like, uh, were you? Did you even believe you could do it, or what was that like? That journey. You know, Shannon, that's an, a, a very insightful question. By the way, I want to ask you because uh, my wife pulled up our camp picture from the Carter Springs camp. She wants to know what your maiden name is. We're going to look you up on our picture here. Oh, my maiden name is Shanna Sparks. Sparks, yeah. S-P-A-R-S. Okay, she's <laughs> smiling. So, so uh, ask the question again, please. I was just asking about that moment where your coach pulled you aside on that bus to tell you that he believes that you could break the four minute mile, the first ever high school boy to do that. What was that like the journey? Like after he said that. And I would, I would say probably a lot of your listeners are there and some have moved beyond that point. And that is, I respectfully nodded my head, not really believing it, but I wanted to go along with what he was saying. And, and and the belief that he was more experienced, older. First of all, one thing he had to do was to change my attitude. Uh, I was I was a grumbler. You know, that was a lot of work. We were, I mean, my first year we were running 60 to 70 miles a week. Second year was 100 and it kept going up uh, per mile, per week. So in the beginning, my, my response was more out of respect. Oh, okay, if this is going to happen, I'm going to try and do what he has asked me to do. and. Uh, so we made some amazing progression. The first year I went from, you know, in the fall of 62, from a 538 mile to uh, June of 1963 to a 407.8. So it was an enormous incre- improvement. And I could begin to believe, but I have to say I was still holding on a little bit to the past and that, I mean, running under four minutes when adults had taken years to get there and that a kid uh, who's now 16 and going on 17 would right under four minutes. So it was, it was a huge leap. And uh, I, will, I will say this, that a year later in 1964, I think it was June 5th in the Compton Relays in Compton, California, uh, our goal that night uh, running in the Compton Relays 
was to run 359. We I progressed well, and and again by the grace of God, I didn't have injuries, and so uh, that night the goal was 359. It was actually a little bit of a rough and tumble race because while I started well, uh, about 600 yards into it, I got bumped by one of the runners, not intentionally. Uh, and I stepped off on the inside of the track. I was in the middle of the pack. I had to slow down, get back into the stride. And of course, Chris Simmons told me later, he said, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, you've lost your rhythm. Can you get back into it? And uh, again, I say this often because it's really true, but the grace of God, I caught up with the pack. I stayed with them. And then with about 100 yards to go, I thought, wow, that finish line's a long ways off. Uh, and I got across the finish line and past the finish line, runner's pose, hands on your knees, uh, you know, everything hurts. And the PA system announced that for the first time in history, uh, the first eight runners had run under four minutes. And in that race, Dyro Burleson had won. I think he ran 3.56. And so Coach and I are hurriedly trying to figure out was I eighth or ninth. And at the same time that we just determined that I was number eight, they then announced that the first high school boy ever uh, to run under four minutes, did so at 359.0, which was my goal for that particular night. And so I, I'm going back to your original question, Shannon, and that is this, uh, you know, what were my thoughts in the beginning? It was really coach's goal, which I was adopting, but not really believing in, but was trying to get there by following what he had given me to do. And that night, I, I, I couldn't sleep because I wow, this, this amazing thing has happened. I mean, that little prayer back in junior high asking for God's help, and then within two years, or less than that, actually, uh, running under four minutes, and I was tossing and turning, and then the thought came to me, we talk about this again in camp, and you may remember this, Shanda, I don't know, but I said the key to this for your improving on your goals is to take ownership. And ownership means that you know where you can, where you've cut corners or where you might put a little more effort in and so that while the coach can get you so far, the rest of that destination or realizing your destiny has to come by taking ownership. And so for me, that was the next big step, and it made a big difference from then on. So it was a, a gradual progression. That's amazing because it is so true. I mean, you had this coach in your life that allowed you to dream big. And I think that's a really important first step, right? Like the power of coach, like you were, you even say in your high school camps and like they mean so much. And then you took ownership and, and set a high school record to be become the first boy to ever break the four minute mile. I mean, I just love your story, Jim. Well, it, I, you know, and that's why I, I think I said to Chris earlier, I've got to pinch myself when I look back because it all happened and I'm, I'm just marvel at it. In fact, uh, you know, as it continued to get better and better, uh, I wanted to, and this was something that uh, I, I don't know quite something how where the coach said something, but when I went to the starting line, even in high school races, where I would be, if you will, the overwhelming favorite, uh, because I'd run into four minutes and some of them were still struggling for four minutes and 30 seconds, I had gained the respect or gained an understanding that I respected the fact that they had earned the right to be on that starting line. While I had a faster time, they had worked hard to get there. And so that was something that always stayed with me. And I think it's because of those early days that I shared with you earlier that, you know, when you're cut from the church baseball team and junior high basketball team, you know, you, you're really just looking for something you can do well. And in my case, God gifted me as a middle distance runner. But I wanted to show that respect to everyone on the starting line. And, you know, sometimes I would say something to them, even though I was quiet, or maybe after the race, congratulate them on their performance, just because. I remember those early days before running well and how, what a challenge it was. Can you talk about your faith before we go too much further? Obviously, you've referenced it a lot already, and you were a middle school boy praying for that, that grace from God to give you that path. How, how did that form? Where did it come from? And what did it mean on the journey? You know, it, Chris, that's a really good question because I was churched growing up all my life, and I learned a lot about religion, so to speak. You know, there's a right way, there's a wrong way, honor, you know, the adults in your life, respect them. But it wasn't until years later that I became basically a born-again Christian. 
And the difference was enormous because while I was churched and, and having great success, uh, my life became measured in tenths of a second. And by that, I mean when I ran well, boy, people loved me. I mean, I was on the cover of Sports Illustrated seven times. I would become, uh, you know, ESPN High School Athlete of the Century. But with that came the tension of knowing that if I didn't run well, uh, I wouldn't have my identity. And so there was that tension between running well and who I was and, and being churched. And it wasn't until later on, until the 1970, 71 time frame, that what I would call real Christians started appearing in our lives. And it wasn't, and it was this way. I, for me, church up until then was going to church on Sunday. Wonderful. The rest of the week, you lived your life whatever way you wanted to. But I started struggling with racing, running well, not running well. And then Christians appeared in my life. And they seemed to have peace and joy in the midst of all the struggles. And I had to quickly identify, Anna and I both did, that it wasn't that peace and all of the struggle. And so the real turning point came. We had a couple, up older couple, Bernie and Claire Taylor, who shared with us their experience as becoming Christians. Then on May 18, 1972, Ann and I very simply knelt and prayed and asked Jesus Christ to come into our lives. And that was the transformative moment for me in that, and it wasn't like the lights in the room went off and there was a lightning strike or anything, but there was this overwhelming peace that, you know, God was communicating to me uh, that. He loved me for what I, who he, he loved me because he loved me, not because I had earned it. And that difference was enormous because it gave me the understanding that I, even if I didn't run fast or didn't win an Olympic gold medal or whatever, that he still loved me. It wasn't an earned relationship. It was something that he gave freely. That was enormously transformative because, uh, you know, there'd been some rough spots in there when I hadn't run well. And boy, you you get these letters from people, you know, if you hadn't married Anne or if you took your wedding ring off of your left hand, you'd be balanced, you'd run faster. And it's enormous. I mean, it's interesting what people will say. And some of them are intended to be good, but, you know, they aren't very practical. But that night when I invited Christ to come into my life, it was like, wow, there's a huge difference between becoming a Christian and just playing religion. Well, there you go. Yeah, well, you, but you had to feel that tug a little bit earlier in high school. I mean, as you said, you were church at that time, but a middle schooler praying for guidance and then getting an answer in a sense had to draw some of that tug earlier too, right? I'm sorry, Chris, explain that again. Say it again. So you you talked about ultimately reaching that point of being a born-again Christian in, what, 70, 71? Well, Time frame. It, it was, it was, and I've used the word before, transformational. Let me take it a few years down the road after May 18th, 1972. Uh, in 1996, uh, I, mean, we, I was helping carry the Olympic torch across Kansas, and uh, the congressman from Wichita, when I was there for part of that ceremony, challenged me with the thought, you know, maybe you should run for Congress in your district because that seat is vacant. And so that night as we went home, I, I mentioned that to Anne. She nearly fell out of the car because two things I said I'd never do was, one, run for political office, and number two, never coach. And here I am going back on something that I, you know, said I wouldn't do. Well, eventually, you know, we, we did run. We won the first time around in uh, 1996. I had the privilege of serving for 10 years, five terms. But there was a moment in there when I, and I still do it, and you may have one Shanna from camp. I signed my name and I put down Jim Ryan, go of God, John 3, verses 3 to 8. During that first political season, I had a reporter that came up to me and said, you know, uh, Jim, if, you're, if you continue to carry that kind of message, signing that verse, John 3, 3 to 8, it may not go well for you in your political life. And I, I made a point to her. I said, you know, if I hadn't become a Christian, I wouldn't be wanting to serve the people of the second district because Prior to that, I thought the world revolved around me and I was on a pedestal. But when I became a Christian, I realized there's a great opportunity to help other people and to serve them. And that's what I hope to do. This was in the campaign of 1996, was to represent uh, the second district back in Washington and serve them uh, the best I could. So it was a, a moment in time that when we became Christians, it was very small. It was kind of like the first step in running. You don't go very far, very fast. but 
ultimately you become stronger and faster. And so your faith grows as this exercise uh, down the years. Let's go back to spring and summer of 64. You run the 359 that June, you said, and then you go to the Tokyo Games that summer as a 17-year-old, still, I believe, the youngest U.S. male track athlete ever to compete at the Olympic Games. What was that like? That seems like an insane, insane summer for a 17-year-old. It, it was, and it still remains that way, Chris. Actually, during that summer, uh, I moved from Wichita to Lawrence to train with Coach Timmons, uh, and it was a, a hot, long summer. In fact, if you've ever been in Kansas and August, uh, it's it can be miserable. And so there were times at night we would uh, turn car headlights on both straightaways on the track, running right at dusk, just to be able to run uh, without being in the heat. And it was still very hot, but you at least didn't have the direct sunlight. So yes, it was very challenging. But there was a moment there uh, at, at the Olympic trials in 1964 I'd like to share with your listeners. And I shared this with the campus. And by the way, I'll, I'm going to mention that Ryan, R-Y-U-N, running.com, R-Y-U-N, running.com. And I, I share this with the campers in that in that final of the, uh, of the Olympic Games in 1964 trials in the Los Angeles Coliseum, uh, the race was relatively s- slow, but, you know, it wasn't pedestrian. And with about uh, 150 yards to go, uh, the more experienced runners made the move, and there were only six of us in that race uh, for the finals. He had to be in the top three, and I'm in fifth place, and we got about 150 yards to go, and the other guys are pulling away, and my thought was, and this all took place in about 10 steps. Uh, I thought, wow, I guess I'm going back to school at East High School on the cross-country team, which wasn't bad. It wasn't a bad idea. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, I'm not doing too well here. They're pulling away. and then. I look back on it now, and I think it was the prayer being answered again. Uh, it was as if the Lord spoke to me and said, try relaxing. And of course, I am gutting it, and that means I'm straining and trying and you know, hoping to move up a little bit, and hands, hands are, fists are clenched, and jaws tight. And I thought, okay, well, let's just, let's just relax, which seems like such an odd thing when you're trying to run your best. And I started to relax, and all of a sudden, I went from fifth to fourth, and leaned at the finish line, and I'm third, and I'm on the way to the Tokyo Olympics. And I thought, wow, you know, relaxing at the end of a race is a very critical thing in terms of finding an extra gear. And we talk about that in camp, and that was a moment right there that I, as I share with the campers and the way my racing would go, even though, you know, there are times and pictures I look back, it looks like I'm tense in the face. I worked very hard on relaxing because when you relax in the last part of your race, you run faster. And when you get past the finish line, it doesn't matter. You can grab us, you can do anything you want to, but relax until you get, you know, 10 yards beyond the finish line. So that was, that was a, a, a moment as I look back that really changed everything. And Shannon, Chris, you might get a kick out of this. I was so new to running. I'd been running for just two years. I went to my first Olympics, right, as a 17-year-old. Hmm. I got there, and I found out they held them every four years. <laughs> And I thought, wow, well, maybe I could try again in four years. I mean, that's how much of a rookie I was. Uh, I mean, it was just, it was like going to Disneyland and first time. And you walk in and you go, wow, they do this. And look at these great runners. And, oh, my, I'm here with them. <laughs> so, it must have been a cultural experience, too, going to Tokyo or for a Kansas boy. Oh, no, it was. It was a, it's, you know, I hadn't done any real traveling my uh Sophomore year, we took a train to Houston where I ran 407.8. Then my junior year, we started flying a little bit back to the national championships back uh, at uh, Rutgers and then the first Olympic trials held on Randall's Island. I mean, I'd never been on a plane until then. And now I'm flying on a plane from Los Angeles uh, through Anchorage, Alaska to Tokyo because in those days, the aircraft and the fuel tanks weren't large enough to fly all the way across. The Pacific in one junction. So, you know, we took off from Los Angeles in a 707 chartered flight. And uh, I think, I, you know, I'm an inexperienced international traveler. And so I'm sitting in my seat and it's a long flight. And all of a sudden, once we get airborne and it's smooth and the pilot turns off the seatbelt sign, the more experienced athletes 
are uh, lying down in the aisle. They know sleeping is important or they're climbing in the overhead and getting some sleep. And of course, the flight attendants are going, hey, you can't do that. You know, this is this is a chartered aircraft, but it's supposed to be in your seat. But they knew that rest was critical. So they're lying down all over the place, sleeping. And uh, it was it was quite, quite the experience going to the Tokyo Olympics. So how did it progress after that, Jim? What was it like being a professional runner in that time after high school? How take us on that journey? Well, well, you were still an amateur in those days, but uh, it was it was. I went back to East High School, my senior year in high school, and uh, I had changed coaches because Coach Timmons had gone on to the University of Kansas, and my the backup coach was J.D. Edmondson. Uh, and he was a visionary as well. In fact, our goal that year was to run under four minutes in only high school competition. And so, you know, that would became the goal as the season went along. And uh, we get down to the last meet of the year, which is the state meet in high school only competition. And I hadn't run under four minutes. I'd run 401. Uh, and so the finals, you know, it's the state meet, Wichita, Kansas. And, you know, Coach Edmondson was one of those guys who, by the way, uh, the pressure was so great on him, he lost 40 pounds during that period of time. So we, we shared a, a season of memories. Uh, I get, I'm getting ready for the race, and, and he knows that it's something I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself, and he's helped me. And he, so he wanted to kind of ease the pressure back. And so he came up to me just a little before the start of the race. And he always had a way of cracking a joke that sometimes, and most of the time, is very effective in terms of re- relaxing and attention. And he walked up to me a little before the race, and he said, "Now, Jim, do you see that little cloud in the sky? It was 85 degrees, I think, is what the temperature was. Very hot, and there was one tiny white cloud in the sky." And I said, "Well, yeah, well, Coach, what about it?" He said, "You know, that little cloud means there's more oxygen in the air, and you're going to have a great race today." And he walked <laughs> off, and I thought. You know, it hit me later. It was his attempt, which worked, uh, to get me to relax a little bit. And as when you're when it's that hot and one little tiny cloud, you know, really probably didn't think it makes that much difference. But in that race, uh, I, I, by the grace of God, I ran into four minutes, three fifty-eight, which I think still is the last, if not the only one, but at least the first uh, high school race and only high school competition to run into four minutes. Uh, but I, I laugh at that, and I tell it to the campers. That little puffy white cloud, uh, oxygen really was that much there, but it was a distraction to, you know, get me to relax because that's critical in any kind of racing. And you may remember that from your running, Shannon, how important it is to relax. Oh, yes. Very important. I would, I too would get tense. So anytime that you can relax and just get out of body a little bit, the better. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So then get us to the... Um, the next, the next Olympics. What was what was that last those next four years like? You know, it was a lot of racing uh, in college. I went to the University of Kansas. Uh, in those days, freshmen couldn't run on varsity, which is actually a little bit of a blessing. Uh, so lots of lots of races. In fact, I, I there were times when we'd start the indoor season until we'd finish with maybe the European Tour in August. I might have as many as seventy races. Some of those were doubles. Some of them were maybe a mile relay carry, but there were a lot of races in there. And so now we're moving into 1968, the next Olympics. And, uh, you know, I was at the top of the world, so to speak, and I was the world record holder in the mile, 1,500 meters, 80 yards, 800 meters, American record holder, two miles. And all of that meant more pressure in terms of going into the next Olympics that I was the favorite. And, you know, I, I was in many respects, but there's this little thing called altitude. And it, it changed the nature of everything. And it changed what we had to do uh, in the United States to get ready for altitude. And I, I think I thank God for a guy named Jack Daniels and some of the, team, the athletes that he had with him, Conrad Nightingale, Tom Von Rudin, uh, Wade Bell, all names in my past who encouraged me to go to altitude and find out you know, that it was different than sea level because for the most part, everyone at that point kept thinking, you'll have some adjustments to make, but it won't be that big a deal racing at 7,300 feet. And I will say this, it's a huge thing. Uh, I I suffered exercise-induced asthma. That complicated things along the way. And I found that uh, Altitude and I didn't have a happy marriage. So it was a very challenging time, 
but I made the team again in 1968 and uh, went to Mexico. And I'm very honored to have won a silver medal. It's one of my greater achievements. I thank the Lord for that because it was the, one of the most difficult races. In fact, let me share this with you guys because I tell the campers about that in terms of when we talk about goal setting, don't give up. Never, never give up. And so I'd gone through the first two rounds. In those days, they were consecutive days, uh, preliminary semifinals, and now we're ready for the finals. And I woke up that day and I thought, oh boy, this is not good. I didn't feel well. And so I went over to the warm up track uh, in Mexico City and I started warming up and I just couldn't get any lift. And, you know, again, when you have exercise induced asthma, altitude really isn't your friend. And so I went over to the head distance coach for the U.S. team was Ted Hayden from the University of Chicago, Loyola. I said, Ted, or coach, I'm, I just don't know whether I can go to the starting line. And he listened and he finally said, you know, Jim, you've worked so hard to get here. Why don't you at least warm up, give it, you know, go get it warm up and, you know, do your best. And when you get over to the starting line, when the gun goes off, I think you'll know exactly what to do. And of course, he was absolutely right. I needed someone to help me. But it was the race of my life, and I knew that I couldn't go out with the pace that Ben Chipcho ran uh, and be, you know, a part of the, the final 100 yards. Uh, and so I stayed way off the pace running what was then even fat. In fact, it, in all my training for that summer, I'd never run that fast uh, through a 1320 as I did that day. So I knew that it was right at the edge of my limit. Uh, but in the final straightaway, I went from fourth to third and second and have a silver medal. I'm very, very honored to have that. Kip, Kip Cano ran a great race that, <laughs> that day. It was just a yeah. better athlete. What, what do you think it was about him on that day? Cause you beat him in other races. I did. Actually, there's an interesting story that comes out of this, Chris, uh, you know, Kip and I raced a lot. I think I lost once or twice to him. So Mexico was one of those. But a few years later, uh, Ben Jepcho, who was a great runner from Kenya as well, came up to me and he said, uh, Jim, I want a, an interesting vocabulary. He said, I want to ask your forgiveness. I said, Ben, what for? He said, well, what I did in Mexico. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, my Kenyan association really pressed me to go out as fast as I could, saying that my Olympics would be the next one, which in this case didn't happen for him. But I had to go out fast so that I could help Kip. I mean, a suicide pace. And he said, so I'm sorry that I did that because it really changed what it should have been a race between the two of you instead of what I did uh, and going so fast early on. So I thought that was pretty courageous. Kip ran a great race. Uh, you know, he did win. But if you take away the altitude, quite honestly, uh, I'm not sure. And again, Kip was born at altitude, almost very similar to Mexico City. If we were at sea level, it would have been a three-way race. Myself, Bodo Termlu from then West Germany, and Kip. And at sea level, I think it would have, I'm not sure I would have won. Uh, Bodo Tumlin might have won. He was a fabulous runner, especially at a, a fast race at the end. So, yeah, Kip was a, a great runner again, but altitude played such a big part of that race. One thing that's interesting about the 68 Olympics, this is a little trivia fact for our listeners, is that the very first Olympic athlete tested positive for performance-enhancing drug at the 68 games it's not to say that others hadn't used them before that but the first positive test came out of the 68 games and was a swedish pentathlete athlete who actually got a bronze medal but tested positive for alcohol actually ethanol was the official listing but basically the athlete would say that he had two beers to steady his nerves and went on to win a bronze medal but lost it because of that positive test for alcohol obviously that's not on the banned substance list now but that is where olympic testing caught their first performance enhancing drug athlete was there a point in your career and obviously it probably became more relevant even later than the 68 games going into the 70s that you became aware of athletes that might be using performance enhancing drugs you know that's a i love that question chris because it really does uh, address what would become more and more an issue. And I think that's one of the reasons that our sport has been hurt a lot because there have been uh, performance enhancing drugs, uh, EPO, all kinds of things. But let's go back to your question in the 70s. Uh, you know, we as distance runners, for example, knew that the weight guys, many of them were doing steroids and other things, most of which we didn't understand. Uh, we knew they were there, uh, but none of us, I mean, I'm talking about the guys that I worked out with, 
were interested in that stuff. In fact, in those days, uh, we had good friendships. You ran hard against each other, and wherever the race ended up, when it was over, you might go out and have dinner together, and you might even share what you'd done in a workout to help you become faster. But never was there any consideration for drug use at that point. It just wasn't on our vocabulary or in our interest, but rather, how did you get to where you were? How did you, what did you do in a workout that helped you? That's what we were sharing, how not to beat, I mean, how to help each other, not to find something in a drug that would help you do something you shouldn't have been doing in the beginning. But did that come, come in later in the 70s at all, and later in your career or not? Well, it was, it was there. In fact, I, the story that floated around in 1972 was Lassie Viren having run so well. You know, and of course, when he was done, I think it was a great Olympics for him, medals, I think it was a 5,000, 10,000. Uh, but, you know, he was questioned about that. He said, well, I drank reindeer milk. Well, you know, we all knew it wasn't reindeer milk. We knew that there was blood doping going on at that point where, you know, you, you took the risk of draining your blood down some, filling it with lots of oxygen and vitamins, and then re-ingesting it at some point. Uh, that was That was the talk that was going on. But for the most part, you know, you really didn't, you, you knew that was there, but you weren't participating and you were just trying to stay healthy and clean. And one of the things that really was helpful for me, Chris and Shanna, was my coach, Coach Timmons. You know, he made a point that, you know, you, you he, Coach Timmons is a man of integrity, that if any of us ever thought about doing something like that, then you'd be cut from the team. In fact, I'll share a, a story back to high school. And some of your listeners are going to say, wow, what a, <laughs> I wouldn't have, well, anyway, it was his standard, but which we adopted. You knew that if you drank and you were on the team, uh, then you wouldn't be on the team. You'd be cut. And so when I was a junior in high school, and Coach Timmons always won cross-country swimming and track state championships. Uh, the junior year of these particular swimmers, after the state meet, uh, they had gone out and gotten all of them gotten drunk. And that was on a Saturday. And on a Monday, Coach Timmons had a meeting with all of them. And he said, guys, guess what? You've all graduated. You know, the one of my rules was that you, if you're going to drink, you wouldn't be on the team. It's a standard that I have. You know, that's what we agreed to. And he said, you all have graduated. You're done. And so the next year he lost the state swimming championship when he made a point and he established that as an integrity for all of us. And for me, it was an important building block for the years to come when some of these things would become more clear, to, uh, you know, people were what they were doing to cheat that I, wouldn't, I wasn't going to go there. I remember what Coach Timmons established as a standard, a man of integrity, and I wanted to adopt those because I knew they were time-tested and be valuable for the years to come. I love that. I love your coach. No, he was <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, I mean, that. seriously, that's so important, and I think that's a really good lesson even now um, where you know we can think it's too harsh, but at the same time, there are sacrifices that you need to make and that there are lines that you should never cross. So... Exactly. I, I applaud your coach. Yeah, I, I did too. And he was a wonderful man. Yes, that's amazing. So I really want to go quickly, Jim, because I know we're wrapping up here, but I want to get into the part where you wanted to start um, running camps. I want to tell the listeners, like we've been talking about it on this podcast so far, but I was lucky enough and blessed enough to find your running camp when I was 14 and I was living in Nevada at the time. Oh, and wow. we drove out to Colorado Springs to go to your running camp because obviously God and um, running were probably the most important things in my life at 14. <laughs> and I remember Sarah and Ryan Hall were the camp counselor. So how did you decide to start these camps? By the way, I, I'm going to, I'll, I'll reach out through Josh. We'll send you a picture and pull up the actual camp picture from that year. Uh, you might find kind of interesting looking back at it. But, I would love that. Uh, so here's here's what how it all started. 1972, when we became Christians, we started realizing that we had a platform, Ann and I did together, a platform that we could encourage, influence, and, and have, make a difference in young runners' lives. And so the next year, 1973, and I think it was 74, we trained under a group in Santa Barbara that put on sports camps. And then in 1975, we began Jim Ryan running camps with the intent that we would give them the best coaching available uh, in an atmosphere that would have a Christian influence uh, with chapel and yet at the same time a, a fabulous experience. So that's how it all began. And we've done them since then with the intent of 
helping young runners not only get the best coaching, but to, to have the end kind of influence, just like you and I talked about a moment ago, Coach Timmons with boundaries and, and uh, you know, values that are going to time tested and that, you know, Jesus was there to help you. And as a Christian, these will be things that will help guide you. So that's how it all began. And now we're at that point all these years later, you having been one of the campers where we've had thousands of campers go through and we still run the camps and then go to the webpage, Ryan running, R-Y-U-N running.com. But it's it's such a rich experience. Our staff have all been campers. Uh, that's part of the requirement to become a staffer. And they set aside time every summer to work with, you know, young runners coming in from now all over the world. We've had some coming in from uh, the Philippines, from Jamaica, mostly the United States. But it's the same, you know, opportunity to touch those lives and help them become better as a runner and better as a Christian. That's amazing. Well, we'll have to connect after this, Jim, because, you know, our, our phase two for Clean Sport Collective is to get more into, you know, like impacting impacting the youth with this clean sport and integrity and doing things the right way. So we'll, exactly. we'll definitely have to connect about that. But, you know, in closing, I mean, if you're talking to your your campers or coaches uh, or parents, what is your what is your hope for the sport? Well, our, our hope is to give them, if you will, uh, values and a dependency upon the Lord that will help them, guiding them through you know times like right now with the, the virus that's out there, when and when your track season has been canceled and you've worked so hard to get there, but keep trusting, as it says in Proverbs, trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding, but look to Him in all His ways, knowing that while this is not what you had planned that he hasn't abandoned you, that he's a friend that'll be there forever. Uh, so, you know, those those are the kinds of things that reinforce for them that, you know, these are challenging moments, but that life goes on and that God has a plan for your life. And don't let what happened at the moment deter you from experience the full life that uh, Christ can give you. That's great. Well, we love it, Jim. We we really appreciate you taking the time. Your career has already been an inspiration to many. And thank you. This has been a really powerful conversation. So thank you so much. You're more than welcome. We'll do it again sometime. Sounds great. So there you go. Jim, Ryan, everyone really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks to him for joining us. Thanks to Shanna for helping me with that one. Thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can check us out at cleansport.org to learn more about what we're doing with the Clean Sport Collective as well as to sign the pledge yourself or encourage others to sign the pledge. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at cleansportco. That's at cleansportco to join in the conversation. Otherwise, please keep listening. We'll be back with another episode next week. We will talk to you then.